0: Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith
1: Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney and a co host of the channel. Today I'm talking to Sango Mahanti, Professor of Resources, Environment and Development at the Australian National University and author of Unsettled Frontiers Market Formation in the Cambodia Vietnam Borderlands, published by Cornell University Press in 2022. Unsettled Frontiers provides a long view on frontier market formation from the rubber industry in French Indochina to different contemporary commodity networks. Today, we'll explore Sango's insights into these different networks, but also the larger theoretical and methodological contributions of her book. Welcome, Sango.
0: Thank you, Michelle, and thank you for taking the time to engage
1: with my book. <laughs> A pleasure. You start the book with the story of Syria, who migrated from Vietnam's Mekong Delta to the uplands of Cambodia in the late 1990s. Can you tell us Surya's story and explain why you decided to open the book with it?
0: Yeah, so Surya is a man who I met during my early research in Mondulkiri in 2013 and I was first up in that area studying forest carbon markets. These are sort of schemes where in the Cambodian context or in this particular case the community was being enlisted into this forest conservation project from which they could sell carbon credits on the voluntary carbon market. So that was my first engagement in Mondul and I was mainly working in Indigenous Banong communities around the Seymour Wildlife Conservation Area where an NGO called the Wildlife Conservation Society was setting up these carbon schemes. So at that stage there was a lot of migration going on into the area even back then in 2013 and Later, of course, I learned that this was one in a series of migration waves that had come into the area, the earliest being way back in the early 2000s. So Surya's story at the time was very striking to me and to my research assistant, Soxupia, who I was working with. And his story talks about these ghosts that came to him in his dream after sort of The area had been cleared and these roads had been put through a burial forest area. And we found that this idea of ghosts was such a powerful image of the erasure of this, you know, significant place for the Penang people. And also the spirit world is so significant in Penang culture and Khmer culture as well. And the story has really stayed with me all those years and bubbling away in my mind. And When I was working on this book, it really seemed to capture quite a few themes that I was speaking to about the dispossession and erasure that markets can bring, the presence of the state within markets and in this border region, frontier migration because Surya had moved to the area from lowland Cambodia and the Mekong Delta originally. And also just how fluid lives are in this border region because people like communities like the Khmer Krom, but also Indigenous communities like the Penang and Sting people have moved across these borders for for a long time. And, in fact, I was originally going to, the book title was originally going to be Ghosts in the Market. This is how deeply (laughs) Surya had struck me with his story about ghosts. But in the end, I didn't go with that title based on discussions with the, <laughs> with the publisher and review of feedback and so on. So, yeah, maybe my decision to put his story first in the book is a little bit of a nod to, to that idea as well. But, yeah, I think his story really speaks to some of the main themes that I'm writing about
1: in the book. And often we do find one of those stories, don't we? Something that really speaks to the issues that we've discovered in the course of our research. Yes, yes, that's right. But then in the book, you take a step back from the present to focus on the rubber industry in French Indochina. Can you tell us a bit about the industry in that period and the key insights, a close study of it, generated for your understanding of more contemporary cases?
0: Yes, for sure. Yeah, this is the first main chapter in the book after the introduction, and Yeah, in my research, I think I've always found it sort of useful and also important to think historically about the processes that I'm studying in the present. So when I first was developing this project, it was part of a future fellowship application back in 2013. I decided to embed a substantial component of budget and time to do archival research both at the French archives, the French colonial archives in Aix-en-Provence and also at the National Archives of Vietnam in Ho Chi Minh City. But I also, I mean, there's a lot of really great historical work that's already been done on this region by people like Mitch Arso, Margaret Slocum, French scholars like Mathieu Gueron, who have really studied their historians, who've gone into it in depth. So The history was just a small part of my research, so I made as much use as I could of of these other historians' work. Yeah, so I guess archival research is very much a, it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack sometimes. And so you start with quite a wide net, but my focus was on the area, zooming in on this border region, especially trying to understand what kinds of commodities were being traded during that time? How French colonizations influenced trade processes and how they interacted with existing market arrangements and that kind of thing. For instance, there's evidence of early trading networks from that Mondokiri and Krache area of Cambodia, well before the French, of forest products and other things. And in fact, I was surprised to learn how prevalent timber trade was in that border region during the mid-1800s and I guess that's sort of well before the French administration really took hold and Chinese and Khmer traders had quite a big part in that. Yeah, so in sort of my analysis of the main commodities that were of interest during that early colonial period in the late 1800s, yeah, I think rubber seemed to emerge as a good focus for understanding the state engagements in market formation because it was such an influential crop in Indochina, but especially for that border region, because you've got those red soils, the the basaltic soils that also happen to mainly sit under forests and on indigenous lands. And so a lot of interesting dynamics around that as well. And I think rubber really provides some useful insights into how this new market crop was established and what sorts of challenges came up from a range of different perspectives. So, yeah, in the chapter I talk about how rubber was introduced and sort of the technical and knowledge production processes that were involved, like the role of botanic gardens, botanical gardens and particular government actors like governors or scientists and so on, and sort of how they were able to lay these foundations, the technical foundations for rubber Be rolled out in French Indochina. That kind of level of effort that went into rubber is perhaps a little bit different to crops like cassava in the current context, but you know, actually, there is quite a, a research effort behind some of these as well. I visited a cassava research center in Vietnam where they're continually developing new varieties and then rolling them out through their extension network. So to some extent, I think, you know, although they look different, there are still these socio-technical processes going on around market development, and especially for the larger or the longer term plantation crops, I would say like pepper and rubber. I think the other parallel is the role of the state. So in the context of rubber, I was looking during sort of a connection between state formation and market formation, and the state I'm talking about is the French colonial state in this context. And in the case of rubber, the French administration had a very key role in terms of mobilising land through land grants or land sales as well as enticing companies to come in and invest in Indochina and also not directly mobilising Labor, but almost sort of creating the conditions where there was a pool of labor available for that, you know, private actors could recruit as indentured laborers just because of the impoverished situation in in rural Vietnam at the time through sort of taxation regimes and so on. So I think, you know, the state role was quite central there. And I think even in the contemporary market context, state actors do play quite an important role. And so it sort of sets up that theme that I pursue through the book as well. I mean, I found it fascinating that some of the big companies that were active in Indochinese rubber, like Michelin and Sockfin, are still very much in the picture today. SOCFIN has a rubber plantation near one of the areas that I directly worked in. They were a, a big player in French Indochina. So even in terms of specific actors, if you can call them the same actor. I mean, they've obviously morphed over the years, but that's fascinating. But then I think the final thing maybe I'll say on that is what the rubber case brought out very strongly for me was when things started to go pear-shaped for the Indo-Chinese rubber sector because of in- international developments and I think also the French administration kind of struggled to to manage how companies were deploying or using their land after they'd been granted land. They were kind of speculating and sitting on it for many years, some of them. And also the treatment of workers was really producing a lot of opposition against the government from the, the Vietnamese workers. Primarily they were Vietnamese workers even in on the Cambodian side of the border. Yeah, so I think that was really interesting to me because it seems to bring out sort of this what I call in the book, ungovernable sort of dimension of the market where the state's sort of been super proactive in catalyzing this new commodity but ultimately unable to sort of control what happens next down the track. And because rubber was so sort of tied up with state formation, the state ends up or the French administration ends up losing power in some ways and also legitimacy because it seems too challenging to manage issues like price, labour disaffection and that kind of thing. So I think it starts to highlight some of the limits around state power in relation to markets as they sort of take on a life of their own, which I think I find quite relevant in the contemporary context as well and I sort of come back to that a bit later in the book in one of the later chapters
1: and I guess something you've hinted at there without really going into is the changes wrought on the social landscape. And if we think about the rubber industry across colonial Southeast Asia, whether it be in Malaysia or in Indonesia, we see these really dramatic changes, not only of the physical landscape and the economic landscape, yes. but of course, also the social landscape. Yes. Hmm. But then you turn your attention to, you have already mentioned Kasava, but you turn your attention to contemporary trading networks in Mondulkiri, which is your initial field site. And you focus here on how these trading networks feed into large-scale production of industrial cassava. What role does internal migration or other kinds of migration play in this trading network?
0: Yes, yeah, so I think Mondulkiri, as I sort of mentioned with Surya's story, migration is a really important factor from lowland to upland areas, which is a common process in Cambodia, has been for, I don't know, the last couple of decades, I'd say, where people who are land poor or landless go in search of land from lowland areas to upland areas. And in this chapter, and I think more broadly in the book, I, I talk about how this process of frontier migration, sort of migration to areas where people can claim lands that might have been forested or only partly cleared, often Indigenous lands, how that plays a really significant role in a couple of ways for market formation in these spaces, like this whole process of land claiming where people arrive, sometimes they have to buy the land or sometimes they'll just seize it. I think in recent years they've more often had to buy the land, but it might be only partially cleared or even uncleared when they buy it from Indigenous people or from government officials who've garnered land and are sort of illicitly selling it to new settlers. When, as people clear this land, cassava is a very easy crop to plant on these newly cleared lands. It's a pioneer crop. Basically, you just have to cut this longish cassava stem that might be about a metre long into small sections and stick it in the ground. And literally, it just starts to grow. And at the end of the season, you've got some cassava roots in there that you can dig up, cut into pieces, dry it and, and sell it. So, It helps new settlers to claim their land because it shows it's being actively used and makes it harder for people to take it from them. It's sometimes where there's opportunities for land titling like there was in between about 2012 to 2014 with the government's Order 01 declaration where they had this rapid land titling process. People who had been able to clear and plant land in that way were able to in quite a few cases get their land titles for this land so it was able to be formalized and made more secure as a land holding so cassava plays in very much to these land claiming processes because it's so easy to grow in these newly cleared lands but the other part of it is that these migrants are taking they're expanding the the spatial coverage of these commodity crops in these processes so there's a couple of ways in which migration has been really influential with cassava especially but people who are a bit more cashed up when they arrive and claim these lands might move on then from cassava to other crops whereas those who you know have barely scraped together the resources to acquire that land might just stay on cassava so what happens from there people might follow different trajectories but Certainly that migration process has sort of, there's been this nexus with cassava, growing cassava, the expansion of cassava lands and and migration to the uplands for sure.
1: And, of course, that short crop rotation cycle is quite different from, say, planting oil palm tree or a rubber tree, yeah. Rubber or
0: cashew are the other ones. And I guess things like cashew, are quite easy for farmers to plant on the verges of their fields. So they might, often people will be growing a couple of things in that way, but they'll have like a dominant crop and maybe something else going on on the side there.
1: So just one more question to follow up there. When you were talking about the rubber industry in French Indochina, you mentioned the fact that there are lots of Vietnamese actually working on the Cambodian side of the border. Have modern nation states' borders prevented kind of cross-border cultivation streams? I mean, they haven't in, say, the Indonesia-Malaysia border in Kalimantan, but what about this border?
0: Yeah, interesting question. So what I found in the sort of historical record is that, yeah, primarily the, the longer-term labourers on these rubber plantations were Vietnamese. The French might have hired Khmer and Indigenous workers, Penang-Sting peoples, to To help with clearing the land, but then with planting and and maintaining and tapping the rubber, they that was where the indentured Vietnamese labourers were usually brought in, and it was quite like during the Khmer Rouge era or in the lead up to that, a lot of these labourers fled back to the Vietnamese side of the border. I had some really interesting. Oral histories, actually, with some which I didn't put in the book, would have been (laughs) you can't put everything in, can you? (laughs) But who had been part of that sudden flood of Vietnamese back over the border and described pretty horrific conditions at that time. And I would say, in terms of that scale of movement back and forth to work on things like plantations, we're not seeing that now across the Cambodia Vietnam border. But what is interesting, I've written a separate paper about this, is I found these cases of Vietnamese farmers from the Vietnamese side of the border taking leases for land, small areas of land, like maybe between 2 and 10 hectares and coming across on a daily basis to work on that land, sometimes bringing their own labourers with them. That was the only comparable cross-border and it wasn't really migration, it was almost a daily use of that land and it was kind of in the off-season for the Khmer farmers. So that's why they leased out their land like for a growing season and the Vietnamese farmers would come over and grow watermelon or sort of other quick-growing crops like that. Yeah, so I think it's interesting. I think on the Thai side there's much more mobility across the border to work in longer-term labouring roles especially from the Cambodian to the Thai side, but I would
1: say less so in in the Vietnamese case. Mm, And it's interesting because, I mean, there's so much emphasis now in studies of Southeast Asia on that, yeah, still circular but longer-term migration, but often we do forget these daily border crossings that happen on a lot of the land borders in the region.
0: Yeah, that's right. And actually the other reason it happens on the Cambodian side is to access medical facilities in Vietnam. Because often those are the, the closest if people needed sort of serious treatment for a chronic condition of some kind. Yes, that's something that people will cross the border for as well or to use markets, but very rarely I found for work.
1: So moving on from the question of border crossing to the post-boom rupture in a large rubber concession that you describe in Chapter 4, I'd be interested to hear about the impact it had on the two settlements you looked at in Mondulkiri and especially about the experiences of people in different class positions in those communities.
0: In this chapter, I was using that concept of rupture quite broadly to talk about or to describe sort of an accumulation of difficult, of social and environmental stresses or harms in communities and landscapes and we've actually just just been doing a big project exploring this idea of rupture in more detail in hydropower landscapes, so we interrogate and theorize that idea much more deeply. But actually, this recent work on rupture came out of some of these observations that me and my colleagues have made over several years of watching these processes of boom and bust in places like in areas like Mondelkiri where, you know, you've had massive developments like these rubber plantations go in. There's been a huge illicit timber economy. You've had the cassava boom where the soils have been quite dramatically depleted of nutrients because cassava tends to really suck out the nutrients after three or four years of growing it if you're not replenishing it with other um, nutrients. And so I was sort of seeing that these things are really starting to coalesce in quite difficult ways for communities and in terms of environmental effects as well. And I guess what I was finding through my immersion in the literature was that you've got paper by Rasmussen and Lund, which I cite in the book, which talks about how frontiers are continually being reinvented as, because new commodities are sort of identified and incorporated into markets but here, we, you know, me and, and other people that I've sort of collaborated with in, in this part of Cambodia, we were really seeing sort of the breakdown of households and communities and you've got issues like really unsustainable levels of debt to the extent that people were forcibly, you know, they were unable to keep up repayments and might have had to sell their land or the bank reclaims and and sells their land. And often, I mean, I found I was surprised when I went back to a village that I call Prampei, which is actually Kaosema in Mondulkiri. When I'd been there in, I think the last time I'd worked there before starting this more detailed research on, on market networks was 2014. And I went back to visit, I'd interviewed in some detail about 25 households. And when I went back there in 2016, I found that several of these households had left the area because of Losing their land through debt defaults. So that's the kind of process that I'm talking about in the context of, of rupture. And I think, in terms of your question about how people in different socioeconomic or, or class positions sort of experience these processes, I'd say that they did experience them in, in quite differentiated ways. So I think, you know, and this is the kind of pattern that you find in sort of agrarian change processes more broadly in mainland Southeast Asia where and probably beyond where people with fewer households with fewer assets, you know, feel they have less of a reserve to deal with say issues like a bad crop or medical emergency or crop disease, which was an issue with cassava. And so when that happens and people are unable to keep up their payments, of loans and so on, then it's really devastating for those households and they become landless, sometimes have to leave the area and this is quite a pressing issue now in Cambodia. Colleagues are are doing more detailed work on debt and microfinance in that context. But I would say also that debt was also a shared risk across these strata in some ways. So the debts that were held by wealthier families to set up a business or perhaps to plant crops like pepper and rubber, which pepper especially is very costly to to establish. They also held sort of substantial debts and were also vulnerable in some ways to land loss. But I think the difference was that it might have taken them longer to reach that tipping point and maybe they would have been able to bounce back before they got to that tipping point. So definitely there was a differentiated experience of rupture and I think one Important sign of that kind of stress for me was this process
1: of migration due to land loss. Hmm, it's interesting; the themes keep emerging again and again in the different cases, don't they?
0: Yeah, they do. It was actually super challenging to figure out <laughs> how to tell this story. <laughs> I could have organised it thematically or around the places, and I went with the second option <laughs> in the end. But certainly, there is a lot of resonance between the cases.
1: Yeah, maybe not surprising from a geographer. We've already talked a bit about the role of state actors and institutions, but in your last substantive chapter, you really focus on how the state influences change as commodity markets evolve. Can you speak briefly to that question?
0: Yep, so I guess I've sort of set up this issue of the state role in the rubber chapter and then I come back to it in the contemporary context here in in this chapter. And it's interesting because Yeah, I don't know. After colleagues have been reading the book and we've had discussions about them, I'm sort of aware, and I know this from my prior research as well, that there's quite a a natural tendency in the Cambodian context, I think, for researchers to emphasise the role of state and elite power in various processes. And I think, of course, it's a really undeniable facet of life in Cambodia and In my research, especially in the context of illicit economies like the timber, also in mobilising sort of these land sales that I was talking about in relation to migration. And I know that the state is a really central actor, but I'm also always very interested to look at, look for cracks and, you know, where are the cracks in this? Where are the sort of limitations of state power and also question for me is if one state actor is benefiting from a set of arrangements, for instance financially, what does that mean for the overall configuration of state authority and legitimacy? They don't necessarily align as we saw in, in the rubber case, I guess. So in this chapter I was wanting to explore, again, these questions around what states can and can't influence in relation to markets. So I talk about that in the context of cassava on the Cambodian side of the border, where there's been quite a few years of very volatile prices. Sometimes it'll dip really low. More recently, it's been quite buoyant. But when it goes low, farmers are often looking for government support, for instance, with price guarantees and that sort of thing. And so the Cambodian government, with support from donors like UNDP, which is the case that I talk about here, has been responding with interventions to promote domestic processing industries, and also technical support on things like disease prevention. And I guess in the context of these domestic processing industries, we're seeing things. I was actually quite surprised to see a, a donor agency like UNDP actively promoting Chinese investment to set up these processing industries within Cambodia and through contract farming arrangements, securing their supply. This is mainly for the production of starch from cassava. So at one level, this kind of looks like, you know, you've got state and these new Chinese investors working together, sort of a hegemonic constellation But you know, we've seen already with the French Indochina and rubber there, that when the state promotes commodity markets, there's often a perceived responsibility as well. And maybe it's a little bit too early to say how this is going to play out in the contemporary context. But I think it's important to think about what the risks are, I guess, for the state in this arrangement. And so, looking for these fractures and cracks is something that I'm always quite interested in. Sometimes it's easier to see those in hindsight, like in the case of rubber, because we can sort of follow a whole trajectory, whereas we've been the thick of the cassava one. And then, the other case I talk about in this chapter is the Vietnamese government's efforts to set up a mixed fuel market in Vietnam where they were trying to promote this petrol blended with ethanol, 5% ethanol mix. But basically this turned out to be a bit of a non-starter. I go into why it was so challenging, things like the costs of production being much lower in China, lack of consumer trust in this mixed fuel as well as other things, sort of corruption cases that eroded trust in government in general and, and, yeah, various things came into play. And I think the case really sort of highlighted some of the limits around state efforts to initiate new markets and in this case part of it was the complexity of what they had to manage. It was quite a large chunk of the value chain right through from importing cassava chips from Cambodia Producing ethanol and then right through to the Bowser petrol Bowser, where consumers are hypothetically which because it never actually happened <laughs> going to fill their motorbikes and cars with this mixed fuel, so it was a very complex market and didn't work out so the point there was really about raising the question of what states and can and can't influence in relation to markets when it comes to policies and new interventions. Part of it in the rubber context was how market networks seem to take on a life of their own. And that's that the metaphor or the heuristic of the rhizome that I use in the book. So when it comes to markets, I feel like if we just emphasize the role of state power, we can go so far, but we need to, I think, understand the limitations of state roles in markets as well, especially when we're, we're thinking about markets in these frontier contexts.
1: And to round out this discussion of influences, in the book's conclusion you reflect on historical and structural influences but also agency in commodity networks. Before we turn to a couple of questions on theory and method, can you just walk us through your conclusion on these points?
0: So in the conclusion I sort of talk about how markets are Framed by these, the prevailing political and economic relationships, but not in a deterministic way. So, I guess that's what I'm talking about by the relationship between historical and structural influences and agency. I highlight in the conclusion that yes, these structural and historical influences are very significant in framing markets, but also we need to understand how local conditions, social, material conditions, are also significant in shaping markets. And I also talk about small spaces of agency, for instance, where individual farmers experiment with a new crop in a village and others start to follow suit, how the actions of quite small actors can be amplified through these network relationships that are involved in markets. So I guess that's that interplay between structure and agency that I'm, I'm talking about. And I think networks are are quite important in terms of how those relationships take form. The other aspect of the structural and historical legacies is in terms of the differentiated impacts or outcomes of market engagements, which I was talking about a bit earlier in the context of rupture where households that have very different sorts of assets and histories might have very different opportunities and options and buffers in the context of these
1: markets. So you already mentioned the metaphor of a rhizome, which you use extensively to describe commodity networks. Can you explain exactly what one is and why you found the metaphor to be so helpful?
0: Yeah, for sure. I wish there was a better word. (laughs) (laughs) But we're stuck with rhizomes Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, in a gardening context, and I write about this in the book, we think of rhizomes as a particular class of plant that has this sort of complex underground tangled root and stem system, and it sends up shoots in various locations and can spread quite extensively. So that's kind of the literal meaning of a rhizome. But Deleuze and Guattari, bless them, (laughs) use the rhizome as a metaphor or a heuristic device to talk about social phenomena that are similarly complex and tangled. Maybe they, they don't have clear hierarchies to them or a clear endpoint or climax. And I found this a really interesting and useful way to think about markets. I think the concept speaks to the ways that market network sprawl you know I talked earlier about how processes of migration for instance take commodities to new spaces and you start to get these trading networks forming in this expansive way and also this idea that there doesn't seem to be a distinct node of control within these networks and by that I don't mean that there isn't power being exercised within the networks because of course there is you know including by state actors which I've I've talked about before, it is in particular aspects of the network or maybe at times is exercised in indirect ways. So I found this quite an interesting way to think about markets and it seemed to really speak to the sorts of patterns and networks that I was seeing in this frontier region. But I think the rhizome idea kind of resonates with other kinds of network analysis approaches like act-to-network theory, commodity chains or value chains. But I think it helps us to go like a lot of these approaches focus on single commodity networks or value chains for a particular commodity like, say, cassava. But by thinking of the overall market rhizome, it allows us to kind of step back from disparate commodities, although I do look at those as well but to see how the whole thing is adding up more broadly.
1: Yeah, so that's rhizome. (laughs) And, of course, the other key idea at the conceptual heart of your study is the idea of market frontier. Can you explain to our listeners what a market frontier is and how it differs from a borderland?
0: Yes, you're right that frontiers are a very central heart of the book in a sense. And I guess I'm using frontiers in the critical geography sense, thinking of them as spaces of incorporation into global capital, global markets. And people like Michael Watts have written about this concept in some detail about how there's processes of extraction in play, unequal relations of production and exchange in play. So that's the way in which I think about frontiers. In this border region, really it's been a source of Resources for regional trade for for China and for European markets under the French and and now broader global markets as well and Derek Hall talks about how frontiers tend to be quite loosely governed in this case, we see things like seizure of land by new settlers or by government officials as quite a routine thing regulations being quite selectively applied <laughs> and different forms of exploitation and violence, you know, on a daily basis. So I think, you know, in thinking about the frontier, I guess I use the term frontier market to, to describe the market processes that are going on in these frontier spaces and that in some way facilitate that incorporation of new products, new commodities into global markets, yeah, and you know, in the context of frontiers, there's certainly you know a lot of the the people that are writing on frontiers write quite a bit about the role of states in these settings. The other interesting thing about frontiers is, in some ways, they're sort of at the edge of global markets, but because they're such sort of busy and visible spaces of extraction and, and market formation, I think we can really gained some interesting insights there into how markets tick in a way. So yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of a bit of an explanation of frontiers and market frontiers as I see them. And then when we think about borderlands is a region where you have a border between states, and in the borderlands literature, they're often written about as important spaces of, of state formation, state territorialization. So I think You know, because of the state role being quite significant in Frontiers, I think you can see that although the concepts are a little bit distinct because Frontiers speak much more to market incorporation, there are overlaps here. But to me, I think the two concepts come together in the Cambodia-Vietnam borderland, because what we have here is a borderland frontier, (laughs) which is sort of a, a frontier plus plus or something. It's a space That's important both for market formation and for state formation. And I think these processes have been entangled for a long time. I think very similar even in the French Indochina period where I talked about the rubber. So it's kind of almost hard to disentangle the two, but I think they are quite distinct concepts that sort of come together
1: in this particular borderland. I mentioned before that you're a geographer, but you say at the end of the book's introduction that your hybrid approach contributes to ongoing methodological discussions on the intersection of structural patterns and local influences in market processes. What contribution does it make?
0: When I talk about my hybrid approach, I'm talking about that combination of analysing the political economy of commodity networks but also thinking about these sort of nuanced social and material influences on market formation. So not seeing the political economy in a deterministic way, but as a meeting with local conditions in some way. And my aim there is to question deterministic ways of thinking about frontiers as spaces of capital incorporation. And I think, you know, yes, there are entrenched patterns and institutions in play, but I guess what I'm trying to do with this hybrid approach is to draw attention to how these are translated within local conditions. So I think what you end up with is what I think has been called these variegated forms of capitalism or what in the book I call actually existing capitalism, that it sort of takes slightly different and hybrid forms. And I think to see that you have to use hybrid methods to see what those mutual influences have been in a way. So I think one example is the role of state and elite actors because the political economy perspective very much focuses on these kinds of actors and exposing sort of these power dynamics and configurations. What I try and do is think about how this kind of power takes form within specific market networks, how local factors might strengthen or limit this kind of power or perhaps the the overall complexity of the network might limit this kind of power. And I don't think I'm kind of the first advocate or person to use this approach, but I guess I'm more trying to remind colleagues of the benefits of considering these contingencies and nuances, as well as power structures when it comes to understanding how markets are
1: operating. And here, here for contingencies and nuances. Yay! <laughs> Thank you so much, Sango, for your insights into this particular borderlands. But just before we wrap up, would you like to tell us a bit about what you're working on now?
0: Yeah. So at the moment, I'm just finishing up with colleagues a project on Nature Society Rupture in hydropower landscapes where I was working at the Lower Sesan 2 Dam in Cambodia. And very recently, I've just been returning to an earlier interest of mine about pollution. and. Actually, during my fieldwork for this future Fellowship, I observed the use of chemicals, various sorts of herbicides and hormones actually being used by farmers, but I wasn't able to explore it in more detail. So, yeah, some colleagues and I are putting in a proposal to study chemical use and pollution from maize farming to factory farm chickens, and
1: Vietnam's going to be one of the case study countries where I'm hoping to work on that. Sounds great. Sango Mahandi, thanks for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss Unsettled Frontiers, Market Formation in the Cambodia-Vietnam Borderlands. You've been listening to the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to hundreds of other conversations about Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I look forward to joining you again before too long for another conversation about a new book in Southeast Asian Studies.